You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, joined here by Skylar. And it's just the two of us again. Sure is. I like your Baptist shirt you're wearing over there. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell Salt Jason. Salt Lake School of Theology. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> it's good school. If anybody in good the uh, Salt Lake area is looking for some theological education, check out the Salt Lake School of Theology. Great guys over there. They also put on frequent colloquiums. Yes. That are always good to go to as well. Those uh, tend to be done by many of my former professors because one of the brothers that teaches at the school uh, did his PhD at the school I went to, so most of his connections are there. So, yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, nice. I went and even met your guy, yeah. the Old Testament guy, yeah, Gentry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I went and met him. Yep, he's a smart guy. Yes. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's an eclectic figure as well. So fun, <laughs> fun stuff. I could, I could tell some stories, but we're going to skip on that. <laughs> hey, it's been a while since we've done a random question. So, you know, just the people are dying to know what, what is your favorite childhood toy that you oh, had? Favorite childhood toy. Figured, you know, this would be a good one to throw out today. Just war- warm us up a little bit here. Maybe a basketball. Wow. Maybe, yeah. yeah. That's that seems really boring, but also makes sense. Yeah, I would shoot free throws every day. Yeah, well, every day you could. You know, it's a very practical answer. I think. I think I. I wouldn't go that direction in the way that I think because when I think of my favorite toy, I guess the first thing I associate with that is what I got the most excited about receiving, not what I used the most, but. You know, yeah. the like coming I at it from you. the angle of what I used the most, basketballs were just always around. Yeah. So I never got excited about them. I gotcha. But they certainly were probably the most used toy that I had, if we're counting that as a toy. <laughs> I remember one Christmas, all these brand new toys everywhere. And this is back when I hated Christmas as a kid. That true story. And I remember the night of Christmas, the adults were all playing games. I was lost kind of in the middle because I, I wasn't always – I was I wasn't good playing with kids as a kid, let alone now. But I remember watching as they were taking the not, – not playing with the toys, these new expensive toys. No, no, no. They were playing with the boxes the toys came in mm. and, like, going down the stairs in them. Oh, yeah. And I just thought, wow, like, that is yep. quite – you don't really Christmas need in a toys moment. for kids. You just need boxes. <laughs> That's something I've learned for sure. So yeah, I, I just remember that striking me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have. Uh, I guess I guess he would be my cousin-in-law. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he he's my cousin-in-law. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> my first cousin's uh, husband. So he is uh, just. Just uh, well, number one, he's he's just a brilliant engineer, but he loves building things. And his family recently moved from uh, San Diego back to Texas, where they're from. And he uh, he took all of the moving boxes that they had, and and my cousin they have like six, seven kids, and he took all of the moving boxes and he built like a with duct tape and moving boxes. He built like a multi-story clubhouse, like in their living room. It had <laughs> levels. It had slides coming down off of it. It had, it was, it was like the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I was like, okay, I guess you can do a lot with this a few cardboard cardboard boxes. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. He does cool stuff like that. Like he built a barn in uh, the backyard of a former property that they had in Texas years ago, and he built it. Amish style, like, and he built it by himself. So he, he, uh, didn't use any nails or anything like that, but he also didn't use any lifting contraption. So 
well, he did, I should say, he built lifting contraptions to lift like the beams and stuff up into places. He did the whole thing just by hand with hand tools. Didn't use any power tools or anything like that. Wow. So he just likes to do things Your of that nature. Your cousin-in-law sounds rad. Yeah, he's pretty rad. He's, he's pretty rad. He's also like, I, yeah, I, he's so mentally tough that he'll just go run a marathon without training for it at all. Whoa. And just does it. I, I don't get it. And no change in altitude. Oh, if you, I if you get I'm well, no, he'll he'll go like climb mountains and stuff without training for it. That's amazing as well. So I I remember I was running maybe I don't know six seven miles here. Yeah, and then I took a trip to Moscow. Yep, and it felt like I could run forever. I'm, I'm running twenty plus miles there. Oh yeah, you know, like I'm like I think I could still. Go, you know. I had no idea the effect of oxygen. Yeah. yeah. That's why BYU runners are always, like, number one in the nation for cross country. And actually, Utah teams are consistently number one in the nation for cross country, which some of that is the culture of exercise out here. But yeah. there's also, like, Colorado teams. Teams that are located in a higher elevation are consistently the best cross country teams in the NCAA. Wow. Yeah. So there's a random fact for you. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, for me, my favorite toy, I'd say, you know, this is really random because I don't think I had this toy for long, but it's the one toy that just sticks out to me as being a toy that I thought was so cool. But it was like a a little toy uh, excavator, like a digger that you could actually sit on. And I remember I got it when I was like four years old and you could sit on it and you could, you know, kind of move it around and actually <laughs> scoop up dirt and sand and stuff with it. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. That that sounds pretty cool. I don't remember playing with a toy. I just remember receiving it. <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't know why in my mind it was so cool, but yeah. maybe I didn't ever use it. I don't know. So well, maybe it was so cool. You didn't yeah. want to. Yeah. Is, is it time for, for another story? Time for another I think story. It's always time for a story. I, yeah. So this is a story. Colin, shout out to him, my brother. I have this distinct memory. So I got oh this tricycle. Maybe this is why I don't like the tricycle. This story. Yeah. I'm like oh this is so cool, right? So I'm riding it. My brother wants to use it. I'm like no, it's mine. I just got it, you know. And he came and he just pushed me. It, oh man. And he's thicker than I am, right? Yeah, he just came and pushed me off the tricycle. Wow. So what do I do? Yeah, you know, I'm a sinful child. Yes, uh-huh. children are sinful. They're born in sin. Uh, there's the theological message for yeah, we, LDS. You were, uh-huh. yeah, born in sin. Yeah, conceived in iniquity. But anyway, um, so what do I do? You know, I push back. But guess what? The mom only saw the reaction, mm. not the initial, you know, instigating action. Mm-hmm. And so he, she took the tricycle away and gave it to my brother to use wow i must have been five four or five so he must have been three yeah so he won he won yeah he won that's how little brothers win (laughs) (laughs) so no wonder that didn't make it to the top of the list when you asked the question yep yep (laughs) oh fun 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 (sighs) yeah i like this lesson yep Everything's great. Okay, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's get into it. So we're looking at Acts 6 to 9 uh, today. We've got a few more weeks that we're going to be in the book of Acts. Um, actually, like a good five more weeks, it looks like. So, yeah, just Acts 6 to 9. And this is the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum for July 10th to the 16th in 2023. And... Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna just walk through this section by section here in a minute. But primarily, what they're focusing on, and I think rightly so, is the Holy Ghost. There are a lot of creedal Christian scholars that have argued that the Book of Acts, uh, which is often called the Acts of the Apostles, could really be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, or something of that that nature. Uh, some people would argue it could be called the the ongoing acts of Jesus through the Spirit, through the apostles, <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of a thing. But, um, yeah, so a lot of this lesson is focusing on the Holy Ghost, and so we're going to get a little bit into that and walk through this section by section. But because we're going to focus on the Holy Ghost, 
I wanted to read a confession and uh, a little bit lengthier of one. It's one that I believe we've read at least maybe the the uh, Baptist variation of this, but I'm going to concede to the Westminster Confession of Faith today out of the <laughs> kindness and generosity of my heart <laughs> because I love my Presbyterian brothers in Christ. But uh, we're going to read chapter 2 in its entirety of God and of the Holy Trinity. And the reason I want to read this is because I want you to remember that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about God. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity, and we're talking about one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we see him revealed in the scriptures. So listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith articulates this God. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's such a beautiful statement. We're not done yet, but just focusing on some of that theology proper. Here is who God is. By the way, I've been reading a book, um, again, recently that I've thumbed through before that is so good on this. One of the biggest topics that we continue to come up against in this podcast is how there is no creator-creation distinction in LDS theology. And so it's important for people to understand that really what we are arguing from a creedal Christian perspective is that the LDS system of theology fabricates a God that is totally unlike the God that's revealed in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that they do that is in the way that pagan religions did and still do, which is to make God like us in a literal sense. Let's bring God down to our level so that we can better comprehend him. And what we want to continue pushing at is the fact that God is incomprehensible. He's not like us. He is a being totally other than us. Uh, He is the creator. We are the creation. And there always must be uh, a, a clear distinction between those those two things that uh, he is there, there's a an insurmountable chasm between us and God that uh, that always will be there because he is not created like we are he's a creator and uh, anyways fantastic book I've been uh, reading has just been on that topic again by Matthew Barrett I would recommend any LDS people who want to really gain an understanding of the distinctions that we're talking about. Matthew Barrett is your guy. I, I was just talking with another brother actually today, just just realizing Matthew Barrett has written a number of books that are directly pertinent to the theological issues between credo Christianity and uh, LDS thinking. So the one I'm reading right now is None Greater, which I don't know if you interacted with that yeah, one or read, read that one. So yeah, so that's on the undomesticated attributes of God. In other words, what are those attributes that belong to God that do not belong to any created thing? Um, and that's what he's dealing with in that whole book. So if you ever are feeling fuzzy or confused about what we mean when we say creator creation distinction, pick up that book and yeah. you'll see what we mean by saying that God is a being unlike us yeah um another one too that's really good to add to the list all that is in god james dolezal yeah i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name right but i think that's how i've heard it pronounced. so yeah uh it's in that same vein of yeah work yeah uh matthew barrett though has also written simply trinity yes which is beautiful uh articulation of trinitarian theology Mm -hmm. so that's obviously a very pertinent issue around here. He's written a book called God's Word Alone, which is a thick volume on uh, Sola Scriptura. And obviously that's a pertinent issue around here. And he just now came out 
with a new book that I just picked up as well and I'm planning to start reading through, but it is called, um, uh, oh goodness, I'm blanking on the name of it, Reformation. Uh, oh, I have it right here. Give me a sec. Yeah. While you're, while you're doing that, I thought it's so key to see how your point, the connection between getting the doctrine of creation right and the doctrine of God right. So, you know, if you don't get the creator-creation distinction right, you won't see what we do when we try to maintain it at every point between the create, uh, creator-creation—sorry, creator-creature relation, how we relate to God, how God relates to the creation— that's a controlling principle. And I think um, it, it, that's why Hugh Nibley, for example, realized that's where you aim. Yeah. <laughs> like you got to aim at creation ex nihilo to justify Mormonism in any way. Yeah. Uh, so the the title of that this new book is The Reformation as Renewal. Have you seen this one yet? I have. Yeah. So I haven't it's read a, it. It's a 900 page beast. And the subtitle is Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And the argument that, that Barrett is making in this book is that the the true Catholic, little c Catholic, not Roman Catholic, that's often confusing to people. Catholic just means universal church. So the one true church has never been lost from the earth. And he's, uh, he's tracking that reality in this book and is drawing from a lot of the, the theology that comes from uh, from our forefathers in the faith, and so this book will be. I'm excited to dig into it because it'll be relevant to what we're trying to come come at in this podcast, which is which is just that. But uh, you know, again, with the claims of the great apostasy, uh, that this book is going to be so. He he's basically saying the Reformation was not a uh, innovation, revelation, or, or, or a revelation, revolution. Is right, the word. <laughs> right. Yeah, they go hand in hand. It wasn't a new revelation, right? New revelation. It was a. It was a. It was a renewal. It was the yeah. church was there. The church has always been there. There's always been light, um, but the Reformation was the word of God being put back into the church yep. and the church experiencing a powerful revival as a result of God's word being placed front and center again. Versus a man-made institution, yeah, so. and there there were even voices at the Council of Trent that were saying Luther's right about the gospel. That's right. We always forget about them. Yep, that's right. Okay, uh, God hath continuing on. Here. <laughs> God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creatures which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His glory in by unto and upon them. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature." So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and to every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost. They use the Holy Ghost language there. Like old King James. Yep. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. All right, there you go. So that's what we believe <laughs> about God. And uh, it's beautiful in the way that they articulate that in that confession. All right, let's look at Acts 9, or Acts 6 to 9, I should say, in the Come Follow Me curriculum. So let's start off at the top again, shall we? Uh, just again, at the very beginning, they're rephrasing the same thing every week, but as uh, as you'd mentioned earlier, it's interesting to see how they change that each week, because you can see that they're continuing to articulate the same thing, but as you look at it each time, you really get the picture all the more clearly of how they deal with the scripture and how they deal with fundamentally receiving revelation from uh, from the divine. So 
it says study Acts 6 to 9 and record your impressions. So that's step one. Study, record your impressions. This, recording your impressions, will help you receive revelation on how to help class members draw closer to Jesus Christ through their study of these chapters. So again, you see the emphasis placed on study leads to impressions and impressions lead to revelation is what it seems like is the idea there. And then revelation is the means by which you draw yourself closer to Jesus. Yep, that's right. You help help yeah. your class members and yourself draw near to Jesus. Okay, um, then, uh, of course, there's the invite sharing uh, piece again. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, were made aware that there are at least some listeners that are LDS that are teaching this uh, curriculum yeah. who are listening to the podcast. They so we, we appreciate you listening and hope that you'll continue to. But uh, you got to have a conversation with someone even recently where you got to ask, what are the things that are being shared in these <laughs> classes? Because we're always kind of like, yeah, I wonder what's it, being shared it, in this. Yeah, uh, you, you wanted an example. Yeah, yeah. So sure. um, I want more examples uh, going forward. But yeah, if you are LDS yeah. and you are in these classes and you're listening to our podcast, like let us know we what, would what are it. the things that are being shared, what's being yeah. talked about in the class. You know, it, we would appreciate it so much if you would take the time just uh, distinctivechristianity at gmail.com right in there. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to see what are the things that are being discussed. Right. So he said that, you know, he he listened to our episode on the resurrection. He's also pretty informed about, you know, the distinctions. Um, so he said, yeah, he, he got to teach the lesson on the resurrection and he started by asking, okay, why was the resurrection necessary? And he said, just nothing. He reiterated, why was the resurrection necessary? And finally, I guess one guy raised his hand and said, because Jesus is our example. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't yet. It's very aligned with I this I mean, that's what we probably would have guessed that. Would yeah, have that's said, what, right? yeah, so that, that example, uh, pun intended, gave us affirmed what we would expect but like like you said we want to hear if there's i don't know more positive examples out there from the perspective of lds listeners yep for sure okay um so let's get into the first section here we're looking at acts 7 to begin with and Acts 7 is the the well-known story of the stoning of stephen after his famous speech and of course the speech is uh, just lengthy and beautiful and powerful uh, in terms of him testifying to the truth of, of who Jesus is and bringing the, the Jews who are in front of him under deep conviction for their uh, lack of understanding of, of who God is and how they've consistently been in patterns of rejecting him um, all through the Old Testament era and even as they are doing right before him. And, of course, they prove his point right by stoning him to death after he calls them to repentance. But the uh, the lesson here is, for all of Acts 7, is uh, the, here's your subtitle in the curriculum. Resisting the Holy Ghost can lead to rejecting the Savior and his servants. So resisting the Holy Ghost can lead to rejecting the Savior and his servants. You could begin a discussion about Stephen's experience by inviting class members to review Stephen's words in Acts 7, 37 to 53. I think it'd be worthwhile to just read that because that yeah. is a shorter section there that they're uh, pointing towards. So this is Acts 7, reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 37 down to 53. Stephen says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him outside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. 
as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they, dis- when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Again, the temple probably would have been in sight from where he's preaching. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And uh, that's where it would have us. Oh, no, no, a couple more. Which of the prophets did, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Okay. So out of all of that section, um, the way that they're guiding the listeners to think through all that is is to say resisting the Holy Ghost can lead to rejecting the Savior and his servants. What warnings might Stephen's words have for us today? You might focus on Stephen's statement in 751, which is what does it mean to resist the Holy Ghost? To understand these words more deeply, class members could discuss one or more of these passages, and that's from Second Nephi, Messiah, Alma, and, uh, and it says, why do we sometimes resist the Holy Ghost? What can we do to better recognize and follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost? All right, thoughts on that section there, Skylar? Uh, well, the, the scriptures are interesting. They did not, they, one thing that was interesting to me stood out is they, of course, left in the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. Yeah. Uh, my suspicion in terms of what the classes will emphasize is the, the, they'll take these passages about the prophets Mm-hmm. apply them to their modern prophets and might think of examples, maybe even listening to our podcast where, you know, I'm harsh on Nelson or whatever and kind of make a parallel there. Yeah. But I think if they, if they really see the theology here, it, they would have an answer, for example, why the resurrection? That One of the most fascinating things is early on, right? He's using that passage in Deuteronomy will raise up Yep. and, and seeing raise up as meaning the resurrected Christ. It's a detail that we might often miss. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a scholar, Brandon Crow, actually emphasized this quite a bit. Um, he talks about how in this spe- sermon, really, um, that the resurrection is a vindication, right, of the righteousness of God. Uh, in three points he emphasizes that I think is worth sharing here. Of course, the first is that we're going to get to last because they're going to go, at least in the seminary manual, they're going to go to the martyrdom, which they emphasize quite a bit. Um, So I'll save that one. Second, though, the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. He sees this raising up as a literal, literally being fulfilled in the resurrection. And then the third, it's actually kind of interesting how he relativizes the temple, now that Jesus is resurrected, we find out, I think, um, I can't remember if it's a little earlier or a little later, that Stephen, one of his, he's being condemned for saying, calling for the end of the temple. Yeah. Probably prophesying about it because Jesus did, saying this thing's going to be destroyed. Of course, we found out that's what happened. But his notice his use of even the language of idolatry made with hands to speak of Solomon's temple. Not mm-hmm. just, I mean, think of what he would say about pagan temples or temples made by polytheists. Um, he's saying this about the temple to the true God. Yeah. Um, and yet Jesus himself is the temple that's not made with hands, right? Yeah. Mark 14, 58. So since no human-made temple, even by God's people in God's way, right, 
is the ultimate realization of God's promise, they have to look for a temple they couldn't make themselves. And we see that in the incarnation of Jesus, which is, once again, it ties all the themes together we've emphasized all year. The virgin birth, all these distinctives Mm -hmm. that Mormons will uh, at best complicate, if not reject, they matter here. Yeah. Because Jesus' body is one made without hands. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of theology here dealing with idolatry and if and how even monotheistic Israel in rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God as he reveals himself. Yeah. No. There is one God, sure, cool. They get that. Right. They don't have to be taught that, unlike some people. Including me. I had to be taught that. Yep. But if that God as revealed in Christ isn't good enough, what does a mere monotheism do? Yeah. No one is saved by Aristotle's vague unmoved mover. Yep. They are saved by the triune God revealed in and as Christ. Yeah. That's who they're saved by. That's right. And Stephen's emphasis here is Trinitarian yep. to the core in his emphasis on idolatry to a Jewish people that prided itself in having the one true God is scandalous. You see why the reaction is the way it is. Luke is trying to argue throughout the book of Acts that Christ's work and his advance of his kingdom did not go into the grave and become something different uh, as soon as he died on the cross, but that, in fact, Christ is continuing to advance his kingdom by sending the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who goes Mm -hmm. out into the world, who is the giver of life, who builds the church of Jesus uh, by his power and uh, and by his authority, and uh, and that that all is occurring because this church is preaching and po- proclaiming and trusting in a real Jesus who died on a cross, but who resurrected and who not only resurrected, who ascended into into heaven. And so the confidence is there is Christ truly in the heavenly places who has sent out his spirit, who is doing a real present work amongst his people here on the earth. Right. Um, so it's it's rooted not just in things that they hope that they can't see. It's rooted in the fact that these are eyewitnesses of the ascension. Yes. Who saw Jesus ascend into the, into the heavens. They saw him resurrected from the dead. And, uh, and so they're going into the world proclaiming that that is the only Jesus who can save. That that is your God, and you're either going to accept him or you're going to reject him. And of course, the basis of that rejection, as you mentioned a little bit in passing, is going to be the same reason that the Israelites rejected God's leader in Moses to begin with, because there is a tendency in the human heart to reject the one true God and instead to fabricate gods of our own liking. Um, Let me go and let me go and make. Uh, you know, a, a golden calf and say that this is a God who saved me because I can relate to that. I can right. see that. Uh, it makes sense to me. It's, it's, it's earthly. It's there, you know, and, and I, I can relate. Right. right. Um, and the whole message of the Bible is no, if you're trying to craft a God that looks like anything in, in creation, ultimately you're, you're misstepping and going wrong. And Jesus is the, the creator God. Um, not just part of the creation. Mm-hmm. Inclu- even if you call that Jesus, right? This is a detail often missed with the golden calf incident, and I think it's lurking right here when Stephen's condemning them for rejecting Jesus, is they called a golden calf Yahweh in Exodus. Yeah. So it's, it's, you should see how the first commandment links to the second, monotheism, but then it's also worshiping him on his terms, not yep. yours. You know, they're, they're saying, okay, we'll worship Yahweh, the one true God, as found in this image that meets my felt needs, yeah, that meets what I'm used to, that helps me love people better. It's useful. It's good. It's not divided. You see this? Yeah. This one God will be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. And if that one God is in Christ, to reject him is idolatry. Yep. Even if you conceptually understand there's only one God philosophically. Yep. There can only be one God yep. philosophically. Yep. So then bring all of that into the context of Acts 7 here. What does it mean when when Stephen rebukes his people in verse 51? 
And he says, you stiff-necked people. Okay. Yeah. What of that imagery of being stiff-necked? You've, you've probably heard Beal. Beal mm-hmm. uh, has pointed out the fact that this is probably uh, alluding to that golden calf yep. that would have had a stick nef, a neck. Mm-hmm. You, you become like what you worship. Exactly. And so if you're worshiping man-made gods, you're going to ultimately be consumed in the worship of those worldly things and become stiffer and stiffer mm-hmm. toward the reality of the one true God. Your heart right. will be hardened toward the one true God. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So what does it mean then for them to be resisting the Holy Spirit in the context of the passage here? They're rejecting Yahweh. Yeah. Because Yahweh has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, and they have rejected Jesus as he is. And doubled down on it post-resurrection. That's right. So it's good to just realize that resisting the Holy Spirit here, or, you know, a Holy Ghost, if we want to use Old Testament language. Of course, you know by now, we don't make a distinction between Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit. That's it's just, the same Greek it's word. It's the same Greek word. It's just a matter of uh, translation. Mm-hmm. But uh, resisting the Holy Spirit fundamentally is to reject the the worship of the one true God. Yep. Right? Yeah. It's not to... Uh, you know, go against impressions. You know, no. it's not to to not be sensitive enough to your feelings. Right. It's to have the one true God preach to you and proclaim to you, and you stiffen your neck against him rather than embracing him as he is and right. worshiping him as you should. Yeah, this is a point too. By the way, this is the Romans argument, at least the first couple chapters. Um well, more, yeah, more than that, if you include the worship Jesus point. But and this this really hit home, too. If there's a Ph.D. dissertation to to read, it's Marcus Menninger's work on Romans. It's really good. But he makes this point that is often missed, this idolatry polemic, um, Romans 1 to 2. And the question, right, then, then what advantage has the Jew, right, being... If you see Gentiles live the law better than some Jews because it's written on the heart, and what advantage has the Jew? They they know who to repent to. Mm-hmm. They know who to ask forgiveness of their sins. Aristotle never knew. <laughs> In fact, Aristotle didn't have the whole system, right? He just saw the philosophical need of an ultimate one. Yeah. But the, the why I keep bringing that up is that you know, this is being debated now, but uh, it's just that is Paul's point is that God has is revealed in Christ the gospel's a message about salvation he brings yeah and right and the the, the gospel's something old it's something they were looking forward to in the old and that we look back on from this side of the cross and the the point is this is who you repent of your sins to mm-hmm and if if you change it once again, there's no forgiveness from a golden calf. Yeah, there's no forgiveness from a fake Jesus that's an equivalent. Yep, there's no forgiveness to a Jesus that looks a lot like Joseph Smith because he's making Jesus in his image, rather than recognizing his place as being judged by the real Jesus. Yep, with his actual body from the Middle East. As I mean, once again, I'm not making a point that like his skin colors. But no, he wasn't a white man, like historically, and we believe it's that body that was resurrected. Yeah. So once again, it's this idolatry polemic is key because, like Beale points out in the in the Jew, the biblical mind, the Jewish mind, the Christian mind, if you worship a dumb idol, you become more dumb like that idol. Yeah. Um, and I cannot help but see that, you know, when you read early Mormons. They, they're not the nice people <laughs> that we have today. Yeah. Like, they can be the nicest people ever. If, if people, Christians that have not been here, they can be the best neighbors mm-hmm. ever. You know, like, oh, yeah. you come in, they, they introduce we themselves. Got so many cookies. Right. So many right. cookies. I, it, I mean, oh. nothing we've said all yeah. year, right, is to take away from that. Yeah. Right. And yet, I cannot help but think that, you know, it took time for them to get more consistent. Once you have this very nice kind of grandfather in the sky, yeah, and then you have this idealized of a grandfather in the sky, and you become more like that. Yeah, you become nice, but guess what? Your niceness is not going to save you. Yeah, 
That's right. Your niceness isn't going to save you. Yeah, yeah. There's a movement within LDSism as well that both of us have recognized. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, punish myself by uh, involving myself in various uh, Facebook groups and things that are like Christians and LDS discussion groups and whatnot. Yep. Boy, boy, they can be rough places to be. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I but, can imagine. But uh, one LDS person that uh, I saw had commented on something the other day, and of course it was the grace discussion that came up again, and uh, and he referred to a he called it a soft reformation that's happening in the LDS faith that is embracing more grace and and things of that nature, and um, you know I think that there are there's a there is a large category of LDS people who I think are lingering in the LDS faith. There's one one person that I have been talking to that just kind of wants to linger there. And the thinking in their mind, I think, is, well, I can be part of reforming this thing into something that is more evangelical, right? And uh, I just I just would challenge you to think about how the Bible deals with idolatrous gods. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't just hang out. I mean, go, go and read the golden calf story. What does Moses yeah. do? Does, does Moses say, you know what? You guys, you guys worked hard on building this golden calf. And honestly, it looks kind of nice. Like there's a lot of good elements to it. I like the, you know, the the colors, the shininess, you know. And, and so why don't we just, uh, you know, put some Bible verses on it. And then when we look at it, we can be reminded of the Bible verses. And it can kind of stay there, but still help remind. No, 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 no. Moses says, we're grinding this into dust and you're going to drink it. Yeah, false communion. That's right. You, you you need to realize that you cannot have relations with false gods. Mm-hmm. And uh, we what we've tried to make clear, and I don't know that we could make it any clearer, is that the LDS conception of God is a man-made conception of God that does not come from the Scriptures. It's not the God of the Bible. No. And if, if there is one God, as the Bible says, and that's the claim that we're making, there is one who demands your total allegiance and total worship— and you can't dress up a golden calf no. and continue on in your way. You have to make a clean break. You have to repent. That's what yeah, repentance is. Turn away from the worship of this false god and turn to the one true God. Right. And know that when you do, that 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 you're not going to live your life in utter and absolute drudgery. You're going to have right. the joy of forgiveness, the assurance mm-hmm. of salvation. You you will have the blessings of Jesus. Right. You will no longer be under the curse of the law. Right. You will be under the blessing of Abraham that right. comes in Christ. And uh, and so it is a it is there's no better thing you could do <laughs> functionally than to do that. But it's hard and you've got to do it. Um there there is no other way. Yeah. I um that made me think of three points. It just I couldn't help but point out if, if a lot of people read Exodus 34, they may come away thinking, oh man, this is pretty harsh. But keep in mind, God said, I'm going to kill all of them. Yeah. Moses only orders the killing of some of them. Yeah. The fact that not everyone was killed was God's mercy. Yep. That's how serious idolatry is. That's right. According to the Bible. Second, you might reframe the Paul question. What advantage has the Christian? You're going to look at some LDS that live formally more worthy lives so to speak, more moral lives than a lot of Christians. We admit that. Now, formally, right? mm. what Westminster Confession defines righteousness the correct ways, right? Matter, manner, and purpose, meaning, right? Yeah. So even if you do the right things the wrong way, it's still sinful to some degree. Yeah. But that, that being said, what advantage has the Christian? We know the right Jesus to repent to. Yep. That's the advantage the Christian has. That's right. right? I mean, there's others as well, but my point is, is like, I'm trying to reframe this argument. You, there is no salvation in a false Jesus. Yeah. There right. is no salvation in a false Jesus. And look, it may be really hard to find the truth sometimes, but sometimes it's easier to kind of, it's kind of like when you take a multiple choice test, you don't focus on all four, right? You say, well, I know it's not that. Let's take that off the table. And then you focus on the two that are close. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's the one that's close. That's not close. This is the one that is not close. False prophets. Yeah. that preach a fake Jesus yep. that was made up in Joseph Smith's imagination and has continued on in the imagination of this entire religion. Yeah, That isn't Jesus. Yep. 
And I don't know how else to put that. <laughs> yeah. And I know it's hard. I know it's so much easier said than done. But my plea is to flee. And that's what Paul says, referring to the golden calf incident. Flee from idolatry. Don't mess with it. That's right. Don't try to reform it. Flee from idolatry. Third point. It made me think of the debates over baptism. And I'm not bringing in all the distinctives here, but I'm talking about the point of it. Let's right? go. In the 200s, are we ready? <laughs> uh, no, the, there was an interesting debate, right? Because you had um, certain people... Um, the lapsed, right? You had people sometimes even revoke the faith and people were wondering if their baptism was still valid. But one thing that I thought was interesting is the debate, and I think it was Pope Stephen and you had Cyprian, you had a few others, right? Anyway, the, the ultimate takeaway was, the idea was, no, 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 if it's done in the name of Jesus, it's a valid baptism, right? Then people came back and said, well, the Gnostics can do that. Yeah. Okay, all right. This Jesus, if it's done in the name of this Jesus, which mm. I'm, this is a little anachronistic, but the second person of the Trinity, they would have conceptually agreed, even if they wouldn't use those words. Yeah, If it's done in that name, it's valid. My point is, part of that baptismal service, this is where I think we would all agree, was renouncing false gods. Yeah, And that might even be false gods we call Jesus, just as a golden calf is called Yahweh, does not make it Yahweh. And Moses didn't flirt with it. He destroyed it and administered a communion of death to those who made it. That's right. That's how serious it is. And it really is the fundamental sin to the Bible. Yep. Every other sin is also idolatry. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the uniting feature of all sin. Is yeah. putting yourself at the place, seeing things through your eyes rather than how God sees it, things like that. That's good. Yeah. So just to reiterate, uh, how does this tie into the lesson? Well, the question that's asked in the Come Follow Me curriculum is, why do we sometimes resist the Holy Ghost? And then it, the last question there under that section is, what can we do to better recognize and follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost. So you see how they're defining what it means to resist the Holy Ghost. It's that you're not being as sensitive to impressions and promptings and feelings as you should be. And that's not the point at all. The point is he is rebuking a people who are refusing to repent of their idolatry and worship the one true God who is Yahweh, who has been revealed in the person of Jesus. Um, and so to be a person who resists the Holy Ghost is to be an idolater who's worshiping false man-made fabricated gods uh, instead of the God who has clearly revealed right. himself in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, what we are talking about is the God who is distinct from creation. All of the theological points that we've made. We, we're both excited, by the way. Uh, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit, but just so your listeners know, uh, we are we're going to keep plowing through this come follow me curriculum for the rest of this year but then come the new year we've got we've got just some exciting ideas of how we can continue to clarify some of these distinctions that we're talking about uh, perhaps even working through some different books that help us to make make these distinctions evident so people realize what we mean when we talk about this vast chasm that right. is between the god of the bible as he's clearly articulated and been confessed in the creeds throughout the entire history of the church and the conception of God that exists, exists within LDSism. Yeah. Um, I know that can be discouraging for some LDS people to hear mm. that because it's daunting. I it mean, is. goodness, was that easy for you to come to grips oh, with? <laughs> no way. Yeah. I, I honestly, if I, I would be a liar if I didn't say there were still moments where I still felt that way. Yeah, where you just want to throw up your hands and say, like, this is right. just who, too hard. Completely to discouraged. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. but the reward is Christ. Real Jesus. You get you get him and you get all of his benefits, yeah. all the benefits of his salvation. And yep. as hard as it may be in this life, the moment that you close your eyes in death, you are guaranteed the hope of your resurrection and ascension to be with him in glory. Right. Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I remember even hitting a point where I realized, okay, even if I don't like this Jesus, so what? He's the king of the universe. Yeah. Like, what What else is there? Yeah. Even if he chooses not to save me, he's the Christ I want to serve. Yeah. So let him do what he will. Yep. And, you know, yeah, there's woundedness that comes with leaving, all the trauma associated with that. Um. 
But in Christ, there's promise of real healing of woundedness. That's right. Um, even if it's slow. That's right. Sanctification. Uh, based on his, his timing, not yep. our timing. But, That's right. But absolutely. And you know what won't help? is trying to sanctify a golden calf. Yeah. And really that, and this is going to sound rude. I don't mean it to be just rude. I mean it to be true. And that's giving them too much credit. Mm. The golden calf still is within a monotheistic system. They don't even have that. Yep. Um, Stephen's rebuke is so interesting because it's based on a covenant status they're being unfaithful to based on the scriptures. He's not testifying of his own experience, even insofar as he's testifying of Jesus. He's testifying of an event apart from himself. That's right. That many there even acknowledge, they just interpreted differently. And why that's so key is it leads into what Stephen sees at the moment of death, right? And this is something that's emphasized way more in the seminary manual, but I, I do want to hit it before our time's up. Oh, yeah. I did some preparation on this. But in the manual, uh, sorry, the seminary manual, that is, Of course, the emphasis is on becoming like them, meaning Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, and identifying Christ-like attributes, actions, and attitudes that we then are invited to uh, make goals about and become more like. And, um, And then those help us minister to those in need. But here's, here's where they come to Stephen's vision. They have a picture I sent it to you that was really interesting. It must be an LDS artist. I didn't, I didn't look it up necessarily, but it shows. It almost looks like a Joseph Smith first vision. Mm-hmm. And, of course, by that, we mean the later one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to get into all that. But uh, how his vision, of course, developed right in line with his theological views of the particular moment. Right. And, of course, once the Trinity became a target— um, that this became a useful way to attack it. And they depict Stephen's vision as uh, two white men, that's what it is, uh, the Heavenly Father, and then to his right, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, to show Joseph Smith his quote, just to show this does go back to Smith. <clears throat> Stephen saw the Son of Man. He saw the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. There are three personages in heaven who hold the keys, one to preside over all. And Joseph Smith continues, Stephen says that Jesus Christ sat on the right hand of God. Any person that has seen the heavens open knows that there are three personages in the heavens holding the keys of power. Okay, so Smith is pretty clear on that. In the manual, they even ask, uh, students could record in their study journal, how would they respond to someone who claimed that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are the same being? Mm. Interesting. And um, they say, under the heading, um, what does Stephen's vision teach us about our Heavenly Father's beloved Son? There are three separate personages in the Godhead. We've covered before how vague personage really is. Um, But if you keep reading, you see what they mean. After students read about Stephen's vision, ask what it teaches about the Godhead. One truth we can learn from the account is that Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are three distinct and separate personages. And they cite a couple sources. I'll put in the show notes to speed this along. The same deal. <clears throat> Once again, they distinguish Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit, as we've said, I think, almost every time. Uh, this is David Ridges. Um, verses 55 and 56 are wonderful scriptures um, to use to teach that the Godhead consists of three distinct separate beings. Jesus is standing to the right of the Father, and the Holy Ghost is upon Stephen. So pretty clear there. Now, to read the verses, right? When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen, but filled with the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. Whoops, sorry. Trying to turn the page here. So the Holy Spirit is not a conceivable physical personage. Right. And in, in, I guess what they might say is he can be one place one time. He just happened to be in Stephen right. at that moment. Yep. Um, and look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city, began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we're going to get to. In a minute. Oh, while they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
when he said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. Whew. So, man, that kind of love. Uh, <laughs> those people are stoning him. Yeah. Uh, yeah anyway, um, we could land on that for a while, but yeah. that that is Christ-like yeah. love. But, uh, you know, getting back to the point, yeah. you know, the... the the uh, way that an LDS person would read the scripture would be to say, well, he saw Jesus and he saw God the Father because he was sitting at the Father's right hand. Right, right, right. hand and hand and, in hand. And of course, yeah, we, we've talked about this before. You, you have a lot of uh, metaphorical language used in the Bible. And to be at someone's right hand was a metaphorical way of saying that the person had been vested with all power. Uh, with all authority, in a sense. Um, and I guess we wouldn't even necessarily, we wouldn't say vested, because it's not as if Jesus ever lost that power as the second right. person it's of the Trinity. But humanity. the fact that he saw him, yeah. uh, the the exalted, resurrected, glorified Christ, he saw in the heavens uh, as the one who has all authority. That's what it means to be at the right hand of the Father. It's not meant to give us an image of an embodied father who is there and Jesus is literally at his right hand. That's a, it's a, it's a figure of speech. It's a metaphor that's used to say that Jesus is at the place of highest favor with, with God, the father. And that's why he's the one who ought to be trusted. Uh, I've got just a, a quote here from Calvin that, uh, that I've pulled up where Calvin says, Christ was invested with lordship over heaven and earth and solemnly entered into possession of the government committed to him. And that he not only, and that he not only entered into possession once for all, but continues in it until he shall come down on the judgment day. So the language that is used when we're talking about Jesus being at the right hand of the father is simply language that's intended to show the reader that uh, that he is in the place of all power and highest authority. Um, and, and by the way, how do we know that? Well, no Jew in their right mind would have thought, well, this is, means I'm supposed to have a physical conception of an embodied God. Um, they, they, they weren't allowed to think of God in terms of images like that. Um, that would have been idolatry. Again, go, go look at the uh, Ten Commandments, right, as, as we've talked about. What, what else you got there? No, just to add to that is there's also some interesting uh, emphasis on the work of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, right? These Christophanies in the Old Testament. And one of them is this name of the Lord, this word of the Lord, this angel of the Lord, this Sabaoth, Lord Sabaoth, the, the, the Lord of hosts of heavenly armies. And, um, I mean, even in some really old passages, like, um, meaning like even the language shows that it's preserving some older forms of the Hebrew, the song of the sea, for example, in Exodus 15 with the crossing the Red Sea, right? If you look at Exodus 15, 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. That the right hand is also a, a, a person who is God, but they, they visibly can see at times in the form of this angel, like Joshua does, or Moses, right? He he's the angel that bears the name of God, that is in some sense fully God, but right, the, but a distinct person of that one God. And keep in mind, this is drawing on Psalm one ten, which even Jesus explained is about Himself, where the Lord says to my Lord, "You're going to sit at my right hand." So so yeah, the the right hand is a position of honor, right? But the the point that they don't emphasize is it's. God's glory, and of course, in the mind of those listening and of Stephen speaking, that's the one God. So he looks up, sees God's glory, and who's sitting at the right hand, well, actually standing, we're going to get to that, uh, in this scenario, uh, in in this vision, it's Jesus. It's the resurrected and ascended Christ that's there. Now, what's interesting is the, 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 the phrase, right hand, it's an awkward Greek phrase, and several scholars have commented on this, um, that it's it's like from the right or whatever. Once again, emphasizing it's drawing on this position of authority. It's not challenging monotheism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's showing what the resurrected Christ 
truly is yeah. as the one God. In fact, um, there's a couple scholars that think that um, saw the glory of God, that is Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That might be the best way to translate it, actually, because the Kai at some points in the Greek language can can actually just explain what it just said. In other words, is it distinguishing, I saw God and Jesus, or is it explaining the God he sees? Mm-hmm. So there's a few scholars that, that point that out, um, that this this is Stephen confirming that Jesus is the glory of God made visible. In other words, you might bring in the Pauline title, which is my favorite title of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, mm-hmm. right? And this ties to our John 1 episode quite uh, quite fluidly. So the hand is sometimes personified as this angel in the Old Testament, including, and sometimes the arm, including, guess what? And we're getting, this gets into the, we're not going to have time for it, but Isaiah 53. Yeah. The arm of the Lord is revealed as who? Yeah. Jesus. He's the arm. So yeah, there's, there's an issue of anthropomorphism, but there's also an issue of the metaphor being personified as Jesus. Mm-hmm. What's interesting now, he's, he, and I want to get to one more point that's going to be a little more niche, but for the LDS listeners, especially if they're part of the interpreter crowd or are interested in them, this will be for you. But really quickly on the standing point, this is interesting. And this is scholar, uh, in fact, a, a commentary I inherited from my uh, grandfather, who was a priest, um, Joseph A. Fitzmaier. He says, um, the risen Christ is the son of man stands instead of being seated, which may suggest his readiness to receive or welcome Stephen. It could be uh, his kind of like legal recognition of what's going on, which is, of course, going to influence martyr, the early Christian martyrs, right? Um, possibly his role as a witness to the martyrdom. And then, or even more significantly, one who rises in judgment against Stephen's own people. Whatever the meaning of the Son of Man's standing might be, Stephen is accorded a vision of the risen Christ who has been exalted in his humanity, I'm going to add those words, exalted in his humanity to a position of honor next to God. And the vision confirms the accusation Stephen has expressed in his speech, which is, you've, it's, these are Christ being made manifest in all these stories, right? Mm-hmm. So one last thing, and this is, um, this is bonus episode worthy, but I just want to, this is relevant here. And this is actually, this helped me <laughs> see something there. Um, I did a really in-depth study of a second temple Jewish text called the apocalypse of Abraham. Okay. So um, it used to be dated after AD 70. And I think that's probably still the standard dating of it, but there's a, a lot of scholars that are trying to push it back earlier. Alexander Kulik, Andre Orlov. Um, these are scholars not only of Second Temple Judaism, but of these ascent texts that a lot of Mormon scholars will get excited about because they can find some detail and try to tie it to their temple. Mm-hmm. Um, let me name some LDS scholars who I'm going to be aiming at a little bit. Jeffrey Bradshaw, David Larson, Stephen Whitlock. They have uh, an article with hundreds of footnotes on the Apocalypse of Abraham and um, you know what they never talk about? That it's a monotheistic text, an iconoclastic text, that the, the author um, and his view of Jesus is debated based on the dating. He's not mentioned explicitly, right? But conceptually, even if he ended up rejecting Jesus, agrees with what we just said. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting to have this academic-sounding article never point that out. But there's a key point they don't point out relative to their Stephen argument, mm-hmm. <laughs> like which I can imagine these three making on this lesson if they were to teach it. And if, they're, if they think that's wrong, correct me. Um, Abraham is afforded a heavenly ascent to the seventh firmament and sees the throne of God. There's only one throne. That was big for me. Because I'm like, yeah. well, what about the Stephen thing? So right hand, if you think, just hold out your hand, right? Mm-hmm. It, the idea was the invisible God who interacts with this voice and then God himself in this angel called Yahuwah, yeah. who is a personification of Yahweh, invisible creation. Um, They're the one God. <laughs> There's one God, you could almost say two persons in this text, long before Nicaea. And... And the point you get, and I, I don't have time to argue this in detail based on that text, but the, just to get to the gist of it, is you have an invisible God who created heavens and earth. They're both created. 
but at the and visually at the top of the heavens is this solitary throne where it, that is the seat of power that is God being visibly manifested um, in terms of his rule of creation. And what's interesting, the Apocalypse of Abraham, this is not just me, this is a scholar, Jarl Fossum, who has some interesting details I won't be able to go into on this passage as well in Acts, but he says, Yahuel is this angel guiding Abraham up. <clears throat> and um, he says, perhaps the throne is empty because the second power who is Yahweh the second person, you might say, is next to him. In other words, there's only one throne. Mm-hmm. So perhaps the right hand, it's, it's, it's emphasizing Psalm 110. It's emphasizing um, the position of Jesus. But it also could be emphasizing the solitary throne of the one God above all things. Yeah. That even Jews that we don't think were Christian would have seen. In other yeah. words, they wouldn't have been thinking, oh, there's two thrones up there. Right. And Stephen might, this text might have gone out of its way to say, no, there's two thrones. No, the point is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, just as the angel of the Lord was. In fact, he is the angel of the Lord incarnate as the man mm. Jesus. Right. No <laughs> pun intended. I All hope right. that was interesting. That's good. That is. All right, we're out of time. So you got any last words? Yeah, just really quick. I won't go into it. I'll put some stuff in the show notes. They they make this ironic uh, comparison between Paul and um, Alma. Um, of course, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Paul's Road to Damascus, and you can too, is what I wrote next to this section, right? That they use Saul's conversion experience and says, um, as a model for our own and as if Paul just changed his own ability and willingness. It says, including the truth that everyone can repent and change if they are willing. Interesting. Um, but they, they say, compare with the experience of Alma. This has been pointed out by several over the course of the last, what, 70 years, 50 years. Um, Sandra Tanner does a good job of this. But to point out one specific one, um, Grant Palmer in his book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, shows that in terms of the authorship of the Book of Mormon by Joseph Smith, how he draws on so many phrases, just kind of shifts it. But a lot of the wording is biblical, and then he just kind of shifts it, like a, a, a good storyteller, I guess you might say. And one of the just the um, obvious examples is the Alma the Younger Paul story. <laughs> it's just like, it's just taking details from Paul's conversion and missionary work and kind of even sometimes taking the exact phrases and sticking them into the Alma story. So he has 10 points of comparison showing that Paul was clearly the model for the fictitious Alma the Younger. Um, and he has all the verses in there. It's a, all, yeah, it, it's worth looking at, but I just thought it was interesting that in 2023, they actually want to draw attention to the parallel mm-hmm. rather than avoid it. Yeah. So I thought that was worth saying. There you go. Well, we, we didn't get into too much on the Holy Spirit itself. I, I don't know. We're going to have to find some way to cover some of these theological themes. But again, it'll be easier to systematize some of this stuff once we're through the curriculum. Because right, right now, the, the goal is just to interact with this curriculum for, for what it is. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's been pretty telling as we've been doing it. So Absolutely. Um, anyways, we'll, we'll get to more of those theological distinctions at some point in the future. But that is all we have time for today. So we appreciate you listening. Next week, we'll be looking at Acts 10 to 15. Again, feedback is wonderful. Distinctivechristianity at gmail.com. Also, leave us a rating review. Share the show, please. Thanks for listening. See you next time.